All right. Welcome, everyone. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Mark this morning. Um, we're in a mini-series uh, that we've called The Visitation. And just to remind you, the idea of this title um, shouldn't, shouldn't remind you of a chat over tea. The, the word visitation in the biblical sense um, is tied to the idea of a deliverer. It's tied to somebody showing up and changing your life. Okay? And so this is Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem in the last week leading up to the crucifixion. This is where we're focusing right now. And of course, Jesus has been to Jerusalem this, uh, before, but here he's specifically announced his arrival as the Messiah. And so ultimately that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, in the back of the pew in front of you, you will find one um, that will serve you. They're the black ones. Um, there's an index at the front that will help you find the New Testament Gospel of Mac, um, Mark. And again, we'll be in chapter 11. Perfect. Melody is perfect. <laughs> Just a reminder. All right. This morning we're going to look at <clears throat> Jesus as the revolutionary Messiah. And I find this passage to be super interesting. I find this character trait of Jesus to be super interesting because it's everybody's favorite. And when it's really pressed, it's everybody's least favorite. From the Christian perspective, God's entire goal in human life is to make us more like Jesus. He's so devoted to that that he sent Jesus not just as a model, but as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins and to give this gift of the Holy Spirit so that we're not just called to be more like Jesus, God is actually working towards that in our lives. But there is a danger there is also a natural tendency to try and remake Jesus into our image instead of the other way around. And we're really going to face that this morning, and I'm hoping that because this is both uh, the best version of Jesus, the most popular version of Jesus, right, freedom fighter Jesus, and when we start to put ourselves on the right end of this situation also becomes one of the hardest Jesuses to accept, my hope is that we'll begin to value the whole Christ all that Jesus is, uh, and not seek to edit him to our own destruction. So if you would read with me here, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11, and we're going to read through verse 25, 26, excuse me. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, in the most insightful way, I ask, Lord, that you would be to us the God that is revealed in this passage, Lord, that you would confront and even condemn because you love us. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see uh, that you won't settle to leave us alone, to let us be, but that you speak into our lives and that when you're angry, you're angry not just at our sins, but for our sakes. I pray, Lord, that we would know Jesus the revolutionary, not just in the historical sense, but in the personal sense this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's very important that we see this morning that this passage is intentionally structured with the uh, happening with the fig tree and then this confrontation at the temple, and then returning to the fig tree. We've talked about this before, but the Gospel of Mark is full of this same structural pattern. We call it a Markin sandwich. Okay? A Markin sandwich as in uh, a topic is started, and then another unrelated topic is returned to, and then the first topic is returned to. Okay? And always, Mark is trying to tie together those things to give us a deeper insight. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is the cursing of the fig tree here is really about what happens at the temple. Mark understands that. He wants us to see that it's really about what happens at the temple. If you read the Old Testament, the major prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, you will see that sometimes they don't just prophesy with their voices, but with their actions. They go and they do symbolic things to make a point. Both the interaction Jesus has with this fig tree and the turning over of tables are prophetic actions. Jesus is speaking with his actions. Okay? So with that being said, um, let's also recognize how unique both of these things are in the story of Jesus. We see Jesus do many miraculous things in the Gospels. Bring sight to the blind, bring the dead to life, turn water into wine, multiply loaves and fishes. All of those things are tremendously positive and life-giving, right? And yet here, from the very word of Jesus, a fig tree dies instantaneously. Some have labeled this Jesus' only destructive miracle. Now, depending on how much of an environmentalist you are, that may already bother you. 
It has bothered many th people through history. In Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian, this is one of the things he points to that evidences that Jesus is not worthy of worship. Okay. Um, but we need to understand what it is that Jesus is doing here. Again, it's prophetic action. It's about the fig tree, but it's not really about the fig tree. Okay. On the other hand, we have this Jesus who rightly walks into this religiosity and this chaos of um, hypocrisy and reacts to it in a way that we resonate with. Okay. Jesus the freedom fighter, Jesus the revolutionary, the one who recognizes hypocrisy and calls it out, the one who challenges the powerful for their injustice, the one who recognizes when people are being taken advantage of in the name of God and does something about it, we applaud. Okay. This is the Jesus I want to look at this morning, the revolutionary Jesus, but let's lay some context. Verse 12. First, notice that verse 12 opens with on the following day. Unlike most of Mark's gospel, what we're reading now, basically through the rest of the end, happens in chronological order with all of the time stamps left in. Okay. Mark wants us to see this as a flowing narrative of things that happen. Why it's important in verse 12 is because on the following day connects us with what just happened in verse 11. So what happens in the beginning is Jesus rides in to Jerusalem intentionally uh, procuring a donkey to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. Basically, he puts a big name tag on himself and says, hello, my name is the Messiah. Okay? He is making a public proclamation of his identity. But the story ends as he comes in and people are rejoicing, Hosanna, save now. They're following, and then verse 11, at the end of that day, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's a little bit anticlimactic, right? This big, successful ride into Jerusalem, and then it just says he walked into the temple, and he looked around, it got late, and he went home. That's what it says. But what that's really setting us up for is verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany. In other words, this fig tree idea is not just looking forward to what's about to happen, but it's already rooted in a reality. Jesus has seen the things that he's going to confront in verse 15. He's already seen them. He's come up with a plan. He's intentionally going to do something about it. And it's in that mode that Jesus is walking from Bethany to the city of Jerusalem. And it says here that he was hungry. In verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. So far, from far off, he spots a fig tree. It's covered in leaves. It's got healthy foli uh, foliage, right? Uh, and so because he's hungry, he goes looking for fruit. And so he went to see if he could find anything. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And then Mark adds, for it was not the season for figs. Now there's two possibilities here. Either Jesus shouldn't have expected fruit to be on this tree, and that's what it sounds like when we read, for it's not the season for figs. Or, if you're familiar with fig trees, uh, fig trees are unique in the fact that their leaves come in at the same time that the buds that will become figs come in as well. Okay? And so if you think of like the figs that you pick up at the grocery store, this is April. This is Passover. It's too early for that. Those don't come till June. Okay? But 
where there are leaves on a fig tree, those buds already exist. And although they're not as sweet or as juicy as a fig, they are somewhat edible. Okay. More importantly, no buds now, no little figs now means what? No full figs later. Okay. And so the idea that uh, Mark is pointing out here when he says it's not the season for figs is not that Jesus was um, unfair or uneducated in his expectation, but that there's a future orientation to Jesus's understanding. He's operating as a good botanist that is diagnosing the future of this tree. Okay. He sees what's coming and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and the disciples heard it. Okay. Now what Jesus did last night, and what Jesus is going to do right after breakfast here, is he's going to walk into the temple and he's going to look and what I would suggest to you is that there's a parallel here. In the same way that Jesus looked at the tree and saw all the leaves and went, that means fruit. So also he looks at the temple in all of its splendor. This temple, by the way, um, is the one that was built by the Jews when they returned from Babylon. And it was so small and insignificant when it was built. It says those who could remember Solomon's temple, those who had lived for the entire duration of their exile and captivity, wept it was no big deal. But what happens is Herod, that Herod, decides to remodel the temple and turns it into one of the most wondrous buildings in all of the Roman Empire. Okay? Uh, and so it was this amazing place. It's Passover, and Josephus tells us just a few years before this that so many pilgrims came to celebrate Passover that there were 225,000 lambs offered on Passover, and that's just the Passover family by family lambs. That's not all the vow lambs. That's not the morning and evening sacrifices. That's not any other offering that a family would come to offer that can only be offered in Jerusalem while they're there during Passover. Okay? Um, and so it is this big and it is this tremendous thing. It is the pinnacle of the Old Testament, right? Everything moving towards this, the people of God, worshiping God according to the commandments of God in all of the rituals that God has directly designed to speak of him. It's all happening. Leaves are everywhere. The tree of Israel is in full bloom. But Jesus comes and he sees the leaves but he also sees something else. Notice verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Okay, now a little bit of context here. If you go back and you read about the tabernacle, if you look at Solomon's temple, there's basically three parts. There's a courtyard. And then there's the holy place where the priests go and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. When this temple was built and expanded, okay, the temple mount takes up well over 35 acres. Okay? And they had added some other sections to it. Because it was a place where not just Jews, but Gentiles, non-Jewish people would come, on the outside, the largest section was known as the Court of the Gentiles. And it was, the, it was a significant part of those 35 acres, say 30 acres, okay? Anyone could come there, OK? 
Okay. Then there was the court inside that called the court of women. So if you were Jewish and female, you could come that far. And then there was the place where the sacrifices were offered with the priests. That was the court of men. And then there was the place where only priests were allowed. Okay. Between the court of Gentiles and the court of women, signs were hung up at intervals around this, basically saying, with permission of the Roman Empire, non-Jewish people past this point are responsible for the forfeiting of their lives. Okay. It's serious business. Um, it is in this court of Gentiles that Jesus is standing. It is in this big area where Jesus is looking around and he finds money changers. Okay. The reason there's money changers is in, in the temple is because every Jewish male had to pay what was called the temple tax. And they had to pay it in the half shekel. The Roman currency didn't have anything relatable to a half shekel, and Jews are easily offended by Roman money. And so instead, the Tyrian shekel was the only acceptable piece of currency to pay, uh, to pay your dues, okay? And so that's why there's money changers. It mentions uh, those, who have, um, uh, those who have animals, and specifically those who sold pigeons here. Another part of Jewish practice was that your sacrifices had to be up to snuff. Okay? You couldn't just bring any old lamb. It had to be one without blemish. And the Jews had developed a strong system of what that required. They would investigate and search over every lamb. There were also designations for birds or what other offering you were bringing. And so what this was, was already approved animals for sacrifice. For those of you who come and give at church, you can carry a check in your wallet and you're done. But what if you had to bring a cow? What if you were bringing your cow not just, you know, uh, not just to Seattle, uh, but to the capital city of Washington, right? Do you see how it's easier and more convenient to pick one up on the way? And so there were animals available for sale, and they were selling them in this court of the Gentiles for the temple, okay? Now, if you go, okay, so all of these things are related to the worship. They're uh, required things, you know, it's, it's not merely concessions, right? Uh, then why is Jesus so upset? And notice what he says uh, in verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. His concern is that the purpose of the temple, and he's quoting here from Isaiah 56, was to be a place where everyone could come to prayer, including non-Jewish people. But the only place in the temple that non-Jewish people have, uh, can come has turned into a Eastern bazaar, right? An outdoor marketplace. Now there's more than that going on and it's worth pointing out. Another thing has happened during this time, okay? And that is that this has become a surprisingly profitable business, okay? Getting your own lamb has one cost. Getting a pre-approved lamb comes more expensive. Of course, there's an exchange uh, rate for the, the Tyrian shekel, but there's also the exchange cost, right? You experience this all the time. It's similar when you go to a baseball game or to Disneyland and try and buy a hot dog, right? You don't get a hot dog at hot dog prices. You get a hot dog at ball game prices. Or if you try and change your money when you travel at the airport, right? It costs you more to do so. But notice what that means. It means that these people are profiteering 
on people's desire to rightly worship God. Okay. And so what do we have here? We have implicit racism and injustice. The only places where non-Jewish people can be to worship God, not allowed in any further, and this place has no room for them. It's just been taken over to fuel the rest of what's going on. On top of that, we have this commercialism, okay, where the worship of God has become actually the worship of money, a way to make profits at other people's expense. And then ultimately and fully, we have hypocrisy. Notice again what Jesus says. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That phrase there, den of robbers, Jesus selects out of the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a, uh, a sermon called the Temple Sermon. You'll find it in Jeremiah chapter 7. And he identifies the Jews as turning God's house, the temple in his day, into a den of robbers. Now, Jeremiah in that context isn't talking about money changers, isn't talking about the selling of animals. If you go and read it, what he's talking about is these Jews who unjustly take advantage of all their neighbors who worship foreign gods and then come to the temple like everything's fine and just go through the motions. You see, in those days, Jerusalem and Judea, all that was left of Israel, was tremendously threatened by powers all around them. But they kept saying, yeah, but we're invincible because we have the temple. We're invincible because we do the sacrifices. We're invincible because we are the people of God. And so they were saying, the temple, the temple, the temple will keep us safe. And he says, it's not the temple anymore. It's a house for robbers, a den of thieves, and will provide no protection. In other words, the last accusation Jesus makes here is the one of hypocrisy. That outwardly, the religion is big and bold and beautiful. It's sacrificial. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, this is uniquely Jewish way of worshiping the unique God, Jehovah. But in the sum total of their lives, it's full of hypocrisy. Religious on the outside, sinful on the inside. Jesus makes this complaint over and over again about the religious leaders of his day, that they're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, fresh paint. On the inside, rotting bones. Okay. Now I want you to notice here that when Jesus sees these things, what does he do? He drives people out of the space. He overturns tables. Okay? In John's version of this story, Jesus has an instrument, an implement in his hand. He weaves for himself a whip of cords to drive people out. Now, I don't think he was whipping people. He's got to get the oxen out of there as well. But the point is that, aside from that, this is tremendously confrontational and violent. It just is. It doesn't seem like the Jesus meek and mild that we see in other places. Can you honestly picture Jesus upending a table? Okay. That's what's going on here. And why? What is the emotion that Jesus is feeling here? It's clearly anger. Jesus is angry about these things, and he's angry because it falsely represents who God is, and it's angry because in that false representation, it actually conveys to other people who God is. Let's just look at these in turn. Okay. 
Take hypocrisy, because I think it's the easiest one. Hypocrisy is when you pretend to be more righteous than you are, more religious than you are. When you put on a show for everyone is uh, in appearance and you're applauded for your uprightness, for your outstandingness, for your tremendous religious commitment. But on the side or in the dark, you're a completely different person. One of the things about hypocrisy is not just that it doesn't work, okay? Because God sees the heart. And he's the only one who it matters what you think of your worship. Consider if you were with, uh, uh, consider we're watching an engagement, okay? And it's going down right now, okay? And the man goes down on one knee in a public place and then he opens the ring and then he looks around and he's clearly more interested in what people think of him than what the person he's asking to marry him thinks. It doesn't make any sense, right? You, the only person whose opinion matters in that moment should be the one. It's the same with the worship of God. These things done in a heartless way to just impress other people doesn't work. But there's another thing that hypocrisy does. Hypocrisy breeds. Hypocrisy cultivates hypocrisy. Because what happens? If you have to look like this and sacrifice like this and be this righteous to worship God, then I'm disqualified so you have two choices. Stay away or put on the mask. This leafiness doesn't lead to fruitfulness in other trees. It leads to leaf inadequacy, right? And so basically, we end up with this big fig leaf fashion show in the church where it's all about the externals. It's all about the outward appearance, but inward, there's no life, no change, no truth. God hates hypocrisy, not just because it doesn't honor him as the one who's worthy of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just our emotions. He hates hypocrisy because it ruins lives. It's the same, obviously, and very clearly with how Jesus responds to the racism that's built into this. God's plan has always been universal in scope. And the passage he points to here, Isaiah says, there's coming a time when all the nations will come to worship God. And here the temple is, and they've even designated a quarter for that. They've read Isaiah. They know God's intentions. They set it up, and then they slowly corrupt it from its own purpose because it doesn't consume them. It's complicit racism, right? It's not outright hatred of other people, but it is not loving of them. And again, it hinders the possibility of them knowing the true and living God. Now, I know we understand these things because we see it in our own American history, don't we? Hypocrisy, profiteering, and racism are always clearly visible and clearly visibly incongruent with who Jesus is. And when we see it, it makes us angry. And it makes us angry because you were made in God's image. But we need to consider another another part here, which is that Jesus isn't just angry about the sins of those people. He's angry about our sins. This is not just a Jewish problem. This is not just the first century temple. This is not just where Israel had found themselves. If you keep reading, you find Jesus playing this role within the church. 
If you look at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, in Revelation 2 and 3, you will find a Jesus opposed to his own people on many occasions. To one church, uh, he refers to all the churches as having a lampstand, a representation of him. And to one church, he says, if you don't change your ways, I will take your lampstand. He says to another one, you've left your first love. You used to do this out of worship for me. Now you do it, and it's good, but it's missing that internal thing. Be careful. He says to another church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Okay, now sometimes you'll hear that used as an evangelistic outreach, as if Jesus is talking to each one of us about our hearts and saying, please let me in. No, in Revelation, Jesus is knocking on the door of a church, his church, who doesn't want him inside. confrontational Jesus is who Jesus is, not just a momentary lapse. This is not passion. God's wrath in the Bible is not passion. It won't just burn out. It is righteousness. And because of that, it is devoted and it is committed. And as many times as we may cheer for Jesus when he rightly calls out the sins that leave us on the outside, when he rightly calls out the sins that distance us from what, uh, what the Bible's own words, words call us to, can we do the same with our own? Can we leave confrontational Jesus intact for ourselves? See, the problem is, we don't like the idea of God's anger, of his diametrically being opposed to sin, of his wrath. And the reason is because I think we've fallen short of this Jesus and we've settled for a kind Jesus or a kind God instead of a loving Jesus or a loving God. Now, love is kind, but love is more than kindness. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis here. He says, many of us want a kind God instead of a loving God. Kindness consents very readily to the removal of its object. We've all met people whose kindness to animals is constantly constantly leading them to kill animals lest they should suffer. Kindness merely as such cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided that it escapes suffering. As scripture points out, it's bastards who are spoiled. The legitimate sons who are to carry the family tradition are punished. It's for the people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms. With our friends, our lovers, our children, we are exacting and would rather see them suffer much than be happy in contemptible and in strange modes. If God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though he has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us this intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest most tragic, most inexorable sense. God loves us, so he opposes sin. God loves the the ones we sin against, so he opposes sin. And you go, but but isn't God forgiving and isn't he, uh, you know, gracious and all these things? He is, but that never leads him to love the sin. In fact, it actually leads him to oppose it all the more. Uh, Lewis uh, continues, he says, does any woman regard it as a sign of love in a man that he neither knows nor cares how she is looking? Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it's lost. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. Love cannot cease to will their removal. Jesus is devoted to the cleansing 
of his people, so much so that he would overturn tables. Now, can I point out something obvious? What do you think happens on the next day in the court of the Gentiles? All those tables are back. All those money changers are back. Jesus doesn't do it day after day after day. This is not about changing a system, but making a prophetic point. In fact, there's one last thing I want to draw your attention to because it's really significant. Notice what it says going back uh, to verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. We talked about those. Those who bought in the temple, uh, brought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. We talked about all that. Now look at verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Okay. Now as I mentioned, the court of the Gentiles is this big area. And so you might read that and think that people are just taking a convenient shortcut through the temple with their groceries. That's not what's going on. The word here for vessels is for the objects that were used for the sacrifices. As you can imagine, killing all those animals during uh, Passover makes a lot of blood. And so the blood was disposed outside of the temple. It was caught in vessels and the vessels were removed. Okay, anyone who comes in with an animal, he's not allowing to pass. He is literally halting the sacrificial system. And tomorrow or the day after, he'll stand in this same place and he'll start to talk about the destruction of the temple. Okay. Jesus is not just opposing hypocrisy or opposing uh, racism or opposing profiteering. He is opposing the entirety of Israel's worship. He is pointing it to, uh, to it coming to an end, to it not being enough. He's standing next to the fig tree, covered in leaves with no figs, and he's saying, cursed be this tree. And again, that's the same statement that Jesus makes to certain churches in the book of Revelation. Change your ways or I will remove your lampstand, or your uh, lampstand, right? And so, it's worth pointing out that it's this, verse 18, that led to Jesus' death. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It was this confrontation that led to Jesus' death. Now, we can put ourselves in lots of places here. Where do we find ourselves in the story? Sometimes we find ourselves in the sidelines as a Gentile cheering Jesus on. As I suggested, sometimes we need to find ourselves, more often we need to find ourselves recognizing that Jesus is talking to us, confronting us. But also never forget the propensity of the human heart to be the opposition of Jesus that would rather see Jesus die than his will be done in our lives. That would be so directly opposed. Remember that Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. No room for neutrality. And so, verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. That's not natural. Jesus didn't, didn't just diagnose something that was happening to this tree and see it happen. He cursed it. And the curse was total. It withered away to its roots. There was no life, no return, no possibilities. Okay. Now, we miss this often. But what happens next is not really about doing miracles, even though it is. Look at what he says. 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. It's easy to, to separate this from everything else we've read, like Jesus just gives a little dissertation on prayer here. But what was the great accusation yesterday in the temple? This house was to be a place of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And then he talks about this being the end of the temple, the destruction of the entire Jewish religious system. The question becomes, where do we go for prayer now? How is God going to fulfill his plan and his will if it's not through the temple? If the externals and the rituals don't work, where are things going? And if you read this closely, you'll notice that Jesus implies here a new community. It's a community of faith, it's a community of prayer, and it's a community of forgiveness. And so he says to them, uh, again, verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes what he says, it will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Do you see how we're still talking about prayer? I would suggest to you this morning that, that Jesus isn't talking about how we can throw mountains into the sea. That he's, he's really talking about how we cannot be the fig tree. He's not talking about how we can destroy the fig tree, but how we can't be or can avoid being destroyed. Okay. What we see here is a vibrant and personal relationship with God that bears even miraculous fruit. Okay. I want you to notice that it implies a community. Okay. And so notice where it's, what it says next, uh, verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, where? Not in the temple. It's gone. Whenever you stand, wherever you are, when you pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Okay. This is probably the easiest way to illustrate. Jesus constantly connects the fruit of forgiveness with the truth of our own salvation. More than once, even in Mark's gospel, he warns us and he says, there's a correlation between if you forgive other people and if you've really been forgiven. If you truly have a relationship with God, if it's not merely hypocrisy, then it will be expressed in the forgiveness of others. If you truly have had all of your sins removed, understand all of your wickedness, recognize the rightness of God's anger in your life, it changes the way you handle other people's sin. Part of the problem of what was going on in Israel was ultimately and totally a form of self-justification. It was how they were righteous. We were righteous by sacrifice. We're righteous by our good deeds. We're righteous by going through the rituals. We're righteous because we look righteous. We're righteous because everybody's opinion of us is so good. Whatever it is, the answer to the question of how is one saved was always, this is what I've done. But Jesus has come and he's going to do something new. In fact, he's going to say in just a few days, destroy, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And he's not talking about the temple here. He's talking about himself. God is doing something new. In other words, there's a new tree coming. And this one isn't a fig tree planted near Bethany. This is a cross 
planted on Calvary, a new tree where new things are going to grow. A place where forgiveness is available for sins. A place where empowerment is available to walk in an actual righteous life. A place where we fully encounter the love of God. And it's the only way that can completely and totally provide the fruit that God is looking for. That's how deep the problem is. The externals, the in your own strength, the what you're capable of will never bear fruit. It's not that we can't do good things, but those good things won't come deep down from the roots of a relationship with God, and that matters. God's not just interested in right behavior. He's interested in your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. He says it's not enough just to keep the rules and be a good person. Imagine if your mother had raised you to do all of these things, taught you all of the good ways of life, and when you became an adult, you walked in all of them and never talked to her, never wrote her, never spent any time with her. Would you be a good son? No, it's an incomplete understanding. What God wants of us is a fully-orbed relationship. He wants to do more in your life than you can do on your own. He wants to uproot those sins that are so constant you feel the need to hide them or to justify them because other people are worse or to avoid them because it's just too big and settle for less. God loves you more than that. He's devoted to it. He's committed to it. But let me point out the obvious. It means that Jesus is going to regularly come to you in confrontation. He's going to call out what's wrong. He's going to point out where you've harmed others. He's going to bring conviction in your heart. But he's also going to bring healing. He's also going to bring forgiveness. He's also going to remind you of the gospel as he does here. Hey, you should forgive other people because you have been so abundantly and fully forgiven. But don't think that it doesn't come forcefully. Don't think that God's agenda isn't devoted to scrubbing out every ounce of evil and not just the ones in your past. Jesus is a revolutionary. But the government that he's seeking to overturn, to bring about justice, is not just the one that's oppressing us. We are the oppressors. We are the rebels existing right, uh, resisting right and proper authority. Remember we saw last week, Jesus comes as king and demands it all. But he also comes in confrontation, overturning tables, driving things out of our lives. Like C.S. Lewis points out, that implies pain. It's exposing. That implies pain. It's con confrontational. That implies pain. It's costly. And that implies pain. But it's the pain of a surgeon and not a torturer. G.K. Chesterton says, we often think we want a religion that is right where we are right. He says, but what we need is a religion that's right where we are wrong. And God doesn't just give us that. He doesn't just slam us with the truth from Mount Sinai again and say, you're still walking out of order. Instead, instead he sends Christ 
not just to turn tables, but to willingly submit to the punishment that we deserve, endure the full totality of it, offer all the loveness and forgive, uh, love and forgiveness that God has, invite us into his family, and give us what Peter calls the divine nature itself to empower us towards righteousness. The question has to be, do you want to be like Jesus enough to stop limiting who he is? Because this is the best part of who Jesus is, determined to see justice reign, not just out there, not just for your sake, but in your heart. And any time somebody stands outside of an individual church or a nation of Christians and calls them out for these things, we should stand with Jesus and say yes. But you can't step out of the church. You can't put yourself on the outside. This is us. This is our need. In one place, Paul says that repentance begins in the house of God. If you're familiar with the concept of revival, many Christians regularly and consistently pray, pray that God would pour out his spirit in such a way that we'd see a big move for the kingdom of God, a revival. But don't ever forget that those always start in the church, not outside. Revival begins when the church is reignited with God's anger about sin and his provision of grace in Jesus Christ. If you want to see injustice out there change, it starts here. Let's pray. Father, we just want to surrender ourselves to the light this morning, even though it's exposing. We want to just lay ourselves upon the altar, even though it's painful. We want to recognize that even though we get distracted, even though we're weak and we give up, even though you don't always have our full attention, that our heart's desire as your church is to be made in the image of Christ, to grow in our reflection of you, knowing that was our purpose and our destiny, to be your image bearers. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't run from confrontation knowing that it's the discipline of a loving father and that we would oppose injustice wherever we see it, that we would stand with Jesus, but that we would also stand with him against ourselves. Be swift to confess. Be quick to head back to the cross. Instead of settling for some manifestation of religiosity or the fact that nobody knows or the fact that other people are worse than me or the fact that everybody's hypocrites anyway, so why does it matter? God, work deeper in us, work totally, work fully in us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is a hard part of Jesus to swallow, but it leads to the best part of Jesus. As long as you see Jesus just as whoever he was for other people, you won't value him as he deserves. So I would encourage you to take 
a full look at who Jesus is and the offer he makes and own up to the bad news that you're a sinner that cannot save yourself so that you can receive the good news that God is so gracious he had a plan to save you and he offers it fully and freely in Jesus Christ and all that you need to do is have faith. Respond in believing what God says about you. Respond in believing what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Respond in believing and uh, trusting Christ enough to surrender to his will and let him be the master of your life. And if that's where you are this morning, I just want you to pray with me right now, just quietly to yourself. And then after you pray with me, I want you to, to tell someone you've done so, to come forward and receive prayer from the people who will be up front, to talk to whoever brought you, to pull one of our pastors aside. But for now, I just want you to pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I recognize that you oppose sin, and that includes my sin. I recognize that I've tried to deal with it myself, and I have failed. I've hidden it, I've fought it, I've chosen it and embraced it, Lord. Thank you that you sent your son to deal with it once and for all, to do what I could not do. I take him as my Lord and my Savior. I ask that you would do that good work in me and make me like him. Father, I pray for anyone who's prayed that prayer. I pray for anyone who's just investigating Jesus, Lord. I pray that you would reveal yourself, that you would do the work that none of us can do, the heart-level work, that you would open their eyes, that you would bring about life. And I pray for all of us this morning, Lord, that we would understand in a deeper and fuller way who you are and that we wouldn't edit the gospel because it's the whole gospel that saves our whole selves. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond now in worship, and we're going to do that in a few different ways. One of the ways we're going to do it is we're going to continue to sing songs to identify who God is and to claim those truths for ourselves. Another thing we're going to do is we're going to come forward and partake communion on your own time. If you're a Christian this morning, come and receive again. The thing about trees is it's this internal nourishment that leads to fruit. Communion is a reminder of that that we're nourished by the broken body of Christ, that the new covenant we have available in his blood, that as we receive these things, we're taking Christ. We're receiving Christ, and he is giving us life. And so come forward and remember Jesus' sacrifice in that way. And then if you're in need of prayer this morning, there'll be people up front uh, who would love to pray for you, and so I'd encourage you to take advantage of that as well. Let's respond.